1: Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by the T- the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. My goodness, tripping over my tongue right out of the gate. Well, that's a that's a good omen, right? Actually, it is. We've, uh, we've got a lot of great stuff to talk about today. Thank you to uh, staplesmortgage.com. That's my buddy, John Staples, and his wife, Heather. They are part of the uh, Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Very happy to have them as sponsors of the show. I'm going to throw this out there just to, you know for, for consideration. If you or someone you know might be interested in becoming a sponsor of this program, in other words, having me evangelize for you and your business, get a hold of me. It's pretty easy to do contact information on the website, the would love to talk to you and even more would love to send some great motivated people your direction. So I want to start with a question today that I think uh, I, I, I actually I wish more people would ask. And that is, where did we ever get this notion that, well, if government doesn't do it, it's never going to get done. Because that is one of the most common justifications I hear for expanding government in pretty much every area of our lives. Also, particularly in expanding the welfare state portion of government. If government didn't do it, who would? I I guess the condensed version of this that we most often hear is, who would build the roads? Libertarians love to have some fun with that one. So here's a novel idea. Going back to an article published, uh, I guess it was last year by Jean Vilbert. Hope I'm saying his name right. It's called, What if Charity Replaced Taxation? Now, before I dive into this article, I just want to remind you that if if you know American history, you know that prior to 1913, the income tax didn't exist. Okay, it briefly was enacted during the uh, war between the states. And then it was struck down as unconstitutional immediately following that war. And it didn't exist until the 16th Amendment was uh, ratified. I know there's some question about that. So how were people's charitable needs meant? Because the bottom line is government wasn't the entity. It wasn't the chief mechanism by which people were fed or housed, or given medical care, or jobs programs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Does that mean people just died in the streets? Believe it or not, there are people who think, well, yeah, exactly, that's that's the problem. Everybody died in the streets, and <laughs> that's, that's why we had to have these uh, government welfare programs created. No, charity, as in private charity, is what carried the day. And this article does a marvelous job of explaining why it would work again if we were so inclined. Look, to, to start with, before again, before I dive into the article here, we have to first of all recognize that there is a public sector, which is government, and there is a private sector. I prefer just to call it the, the government sector because that keeps it clear. The private sector is where Productivity takes place and where wealth is created. That's where people have to use their own money, their own ideas, their own effort and innovation to create ideas or to create goods or products that are then marketed generally to other people to better their lives. Government doesn't create wealth. It can't create wealth. The only thing it can do is take wealth that someone else's productive activity produced and then start transferring it with a healthy, you know, a bit of overhead thrown in, you know, for all that administration. So let's talk about what if charity replaced taxation. Again, this is Jean Vilbert. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education website, first published back in July of 2019. And he starts by listing off some of the more common examples you would think of when it comes to government lending a helping hand. Health care. Education, he says, among others, these goods have been considered so important that most current governments make a huge effort to provide them to people with inadequate incomes. Now, he says, surely it would be crazy to deny how important these goods are. In a 2016 survey conducted by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, titled The 2016 U.S. Trust Study of High Net Worth Philanthropy, individuals were asked to select the public policy issues that mattered most to them. The top two issues were precisely health care at 29% and education at 28%. He says, however, is publicization through state activity the only or best way to provide those services to the poor? In other words, do we have alternatives? How about charity? Couldn't charity replace taxation? And his answer is, it could, and with solid advantages. And he spells out the four main reasons why this is the case. Moral, political, financial, and philosophical, or I'm sorry, psychological. I think I almost made up a word there. So he says, let's start with the moral plea. Are taxes so different from Charity. Jean Vilbert says, well, pulling out our wallet to donate money to a non-government organization responsible for offering health or education is different than opening our pockets for the revenue guys who threaten us. If you don't pay your taxes, you will end up in prison. So here we have a strong moral difference between a forced act and a voluntary act. Taxation is coercion, while charity is benevolence. In fact, rich countries that adhere to a a welfare state model and, of course, high taxation are not the most generous ones. According to rankings from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, France has the highest tax-to-GDP ratio in the world at 46.2%, followed by Denmark at 46% and Belgium at 44.6%. When we check the Charity AIDS Foundation... Charity Aid Foundation, rather, CAF World Giving Index. France is number 72 on the list of generosity. Denmark is 24th. Belgium is 39th. Now contrast that with uh, Ireland's tax-to-GDP ratio at 22%, 22 22.8%, rather, and the United States at 27.1%. Would it surprise you to know that Ireland is 5th on the CAF World Giving Index and the U.S. is 4th? Interesting, isn't it? Next, he says we can wield a political plea. There is enormous risk in allowing the expansion of the state's forces, even when we're talking about areas as important as health care and education. Public education opens a highway to the imposition of cultural hegemony through indoctrination. If education is provided by several independent entities sponsored by charity, it's harder to control it. But when education is centralized in the state's hands, afforded by taxes, it easily becomes an ideological apparatus, which, by the way, makes the dreams of Antonio Gramsci, Gramsci rather, and Louis Althusser come true. Once public forces take the responsibility for providing health care, he says, life is made subject to explicit calculations of state power, featuring what Michel Foucault and Giorgio Agamben. Agamben, let's try that again, Agamben, called biopower or biopolitics. What that means is life itself becomes an object of concern for power. As a result, individuals see the demise of any boundaries against public intervention in their lives. The government gains the power to tell us what to eat and drink, how to drive or how to ride, what we can do or not, and more. And this takes us to a financial plea. He says, here we will set an audacious premise. Private entities sponsored by charity are normally more effective, meaning they're cheaper or have a better cost-benefit profile than public en- than public entities. They can do the same with fewer resources. For example, where he lives in Brazil, they have public and private universities. Research shows that a br- the student in a Brazilian private university costs 60% less to go to school than in a public university. Maybe poor countries could do more with less money if they invested in the private sector and thought about how to promote charity instead of only relying on public services and taxation. He says perhaps if the government demanded less coercively, people would end up giving more voluntarily. Okay, this is the point where I'm going to break away because we're fast approaching our break But does any of this strike you as, uh, hey, that's actually feasible? Maybe it could work. I'm not saying this is going to solve all of our problems in one fell swoop. But I think he's making a pretty good case that it should at least be worth another try, don't you think?
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. We are in the middle of an article from Jean Vilbert. He's from Brazil. And the article is called, What If Charity Replaced Taxation? Now for dedicated status, that's the I mean that you're going to get a reaction like if you held out a bushel of garlic to a vampire. Yeah, they're going to be <laughs> you know, don't show me that. That's that's scary stuff. But he's making the case here that uh, no, it it could actually work. And what I love his is he's made not only a political plea and a moral plea, but he's also making a financial plea. And he goes back to the 2016 um IUPUI survey which asked wealthy people what they would do if taxes were eliminated. This is just expanding on the idea of if the government demanded less coercively, maybe people would give more voluntarily. So when they asked these wealthy people, what would you do if taxes were eliminated? What do you suppose they said? 17% said they would increase the amount they give to charity. 6% said they would dramatically increase. 72% would stay the same only 5% of those people surveyed would reduce the contribution. In fact, in 2013, the figures were even more in favor of charity. 47% say they would stay the same. 31% would increase. 18% would dramatically increase. He says, considering this, rich people would give more money and we can do more with less investing the money donated in the private sector. Why can't we believe charity is a financially feasible alternative. As a famous uh, politician slogan goes, yes, we can. Okay, last but not least, here is a psychological plea. Several social psychologists, among them Elizabeth Dunn, argue that people who give money to charity are happier than those who don't. And we can see the benefits of giving spike when people feel a real sense of connection to those they're helping, and can easily envision the difference they're making in those individuals' lives. For example, UNICEF is such a big, broad charity, doesn't it resemble the state, that it can be hard to realize how our small donation is going to make a difference. What's the matter? Well, the emotional return on investment is eliminated when people give money to UNICEF. Imagine what happens when we give money to the state. This suggests that just giving money to a worthwhile charity or to the Leviathan isn't enough. We need to be able to envision exactly how our money is going to make a difference. And the IUPUI survey confirms this statement. Discussing the motivations for charitable giving, donors provided three main reasons for why they gave. Number one, they believed in the mission of the organization. 54% of the respondents said that. Number two, they believed their gift could make a difference. That was the answer of 44%. Number three, they just gave for personal satisfaction, enjoyment, or fulfillment. 38% answered that way. Furthermore, he says the study showed that people have the most confidence in individuals, 87% reporting either some or a great deal, and nonprofit organizations. 86% reported some, or a great deal, as far as how whether individuals or these nonprofit organizations can solve societal or global problems. Sizable proportions of interviewers held hardly any confidence in the legislative branch, the executive branch, or state or local governments. So Jean Vilbert says we could say we need to find a better way to show the results of tax collection and make the state better at providing public services, maybe a cost-benefit analysis. Well, even with these improvements, what about the moral plea? Will we keep acting by force? And if one thinks people pay taxes voluntarily, what about the political plea? Will we keep making room for interventionism? Even though tax defenders refuse to admit it, these questions remain without satisfactory answers. So at the end of the day, we used to think about helping others as something everybody must do. And it is. But while we think about that as a legal obligation materialized into taxes, we will remain unable to create meaningful connections between individuals and therefore unable to deal with challenges that today seem to be overwhelming, such as how to provide health care and education in poor countries. He says if we want to do more and better... We must stop seeing the state and taxation as the only means of doing things in society. Again, this is Jean Vilbert. This is an article which will be posted in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. You might want to check this one out. I, I don't know. Does that blow your mind, the idea of, well, but uh, if, we, if we let people choose what to do with their money, some people might decide not to give it to charity. And you're Right. Some of them might not. And my answer is, so what? Is that stopping you? If you believe that charity is a good thing, I mean, look, and I'm, I'm going to appeal those of you who are Christian or, or who believe, you, who follow a religious tradition that says, care for the poor. Because I believe that would include Muslims as well. They're very, very good at this. If you believe that that's what God wants us to do, look out for each other then why would you wait until the state sticks a gun in your ribs and says, okay, fork over some money, we'll go do some good with it? Do you see the point? It's something you can already be doing. And I think what we forget is it's the way people used to do things prior to us outsourcing that charitable duty to government. I've said it before, and I'm just going to repeat it for the sake of those maybe hearing it for the first time. The worst effect... Of the welfare state isn't even the dependency that it creates and it does create dependency it's the fact that it allows us to outsource a virtue that we should be voluntarily taking on and that is being our brother's keeper something we should voluntarily step up and do and that allows us to switch off our consciences it's what makes homeless people become invisible when we go nearby It's what allows us to turn our backs, you know, when we see some real need. Because we rationalize, well, that's why I pay taxes. I pay my taxes and the government will step in and take care of it. You can see what I'm getting at, right? Yeah, those people might get some help. Maybe. But if you're doing it out of a sense of, well, I kind of have to, otherwise the tax man's going to come take away all my stuff and put me in jail. That's a far different approach from, I love that person, even though I don't know who they are personally. I love them because I see their intrinsic value as a child of God, as a human being. And I am willing to impart of my own substance voluntarily, even if it hurts. Haven't mentioned this for a while, but I'm going to bring it up just, just briefly. I have a couple of good friends uh, that I, I, th- I call these guys, these are my, my philosophical anchors doesn't mean I walk in lockstep with them, but I look to them as examples of these are people who are really striving to be the best they can be. And one of the things that they pointed out, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, is when you give money, for instance, to a homeless person, what are you giving? You know, do you throw them a couple dollar bills, you hand them whatever loose change you have here, take, you know, take the change from my pocket? Or do you give them something that actually you can feel in your wallet? I'm talking something like, you know, a $20 bill. And this is, this is the approach that my friend has taken. He will give a $20 bill to a person. And it's amazing what that represents. Because I don't know about you, 20 bucks to me, that's a big deal. I would not walk by a $20 bill laying on the ground and think, ah, pff, not worth my time. I'd be like, whoa, 20 bucks. I wonder who lost that because that's a significant amount of money. Well, my friend tells me when he, when he hands a homeless person a $20 bill, people hug him. People cry. Because what they're receiving isn't just some throwaway, yeah, 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 I don't need this change. Here, you go ahead and take it and, you know, do what you will with it. It represents a significant sacrifice they know that you are giving something that you actually feel in your pocketbook. Can you see the difference? All right. I won't beat this to death. I think it's, a, it's a, an idea worth considering. Charity replacing taxation. We did it once. Let's do it again.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Now, I know you're not going to believe this, but uh, sometimes I'm a complainer. (laughs) No, really. Every time he gets behind the mic, he's complaining about something. No, I mean, I gripe about things in my life. Uh, Life is hard. I can't decide which car to take to the store. I have too many jobs. Well, you know, first world problems. We joke about this kind of stuff. But the bottom line is, I do take a lot for granted, and probably so do you. The food on our tables is, is really a prime example of this. And I came across this fascinating article. Actually, it was emailed to me by the American Institute for Economic Research. If you haven't subscribed to their email, it's worth it. You will get top shelf content every single day. And it's not all just dry economic reports. I mean, they have been some of the, the most lucid and principled commentators on uh, COVID 19, the policies, the lockdowns, the damage done. Very, very thoughtful commentary. Art Cardin had this eye opening article about what the poorest of the poor are doing to keep themselves and others fed. It's the resilience and brilliance of the world's poorest, the case of PagPag. And I got to admit, this one hit me right in, the, right in the gut. It was like, ooh, wow. I may have to think twice before I complain. He says, global poverty has been falling dramatically over the last few decades. But a lot of people in the world still live in conditions that are absolutely appalling by the standards of the developed world. Now, he says, we insult them, though, by seeing them as mere victims or blaming them for their plight, when for most of the poor people throughout history, they have been poor because they lost the time and space lottery. The problem isn't that the world's poorest don't work hard. The problem is they work hard in societies where restrictions on economic freedom throttle growth. Ooh, that's an interesting way to look at it, but I think he's right. The resourcefulness and work ethic of the world's poorest continues to amaze me, says Art Carden. The poorest people in the world scrape by on the income they earn from recycling scraps they find in garbage dumps. And did you know they also recycle discarded food? Now, if you're not eating, that's probably a good idea. (laughs) If you are eating, well, um, I'm going to tell you, this is is gut-wrenching. But uh, he says, a few years ago, I learned about PagPag which is food gathered from the garbage, washed, recooked, and sold. Now, who would pay for that? Who are the pag-pag customers? They're the people who are too poor to afford fresh meat. And he points out it's a minor miracle that the poorest of the poor can afford to eat meat of any kind regularly. There is, therefore, a thriving market in the slums around Manila for literal cooked garbage. People earn about 4 to $6 per day in the PagPag trade, and servings of PagPag cost 60 cents or less. Now he says, revolting? Yeah, by the standards of rich Westerners who make enough money, they don't have to dig through the garbage for scraps. PagPag is an entrepreneurial market response to desperate circumstances. And he says, well, I'm sure the market doesn't work perfectly relative to the perfectly competitive models we teach students in introductory economics classes it seems to work pretty well. The poor, importantly, are not stupid. They're just poorer, and many of them are poor because they lost the geographic, lo- geographic lottery rather and were born on the wrong side of a border. In a BBC video on PagPag, PAG, an ice delivery man explains that he buys from a particular vendor named Noberto because he makes clean PagPag, PAG, which is why more people buy from here at 20 cents per bowl. He eats Pag-Pag because it's tasty, but notes it's about having a strong stomach. Obviously. Art Carden says it looks delicious, but I can only imagine what it would do to my tender American digestive tract. He notes, though, Pag-Pag is what the poor can afford. How can we help this delivery man and others like him? Well, we could inspect and regulate Noberto's restaurant. We could crack down hard on illegal Pag-Pag sales. But Art Carden says none of this, of course, would help the people we wish to help. As David Henderson has pointed out, you don't help people by taking away from them the choices they make. You help them by expanding their options. Wow. If you take nothing home from the show today, that's a line worth remembering. You don't help people by taking away from them the choices they make. You help them by expanding their options. Now, one video points out that one of the issues some activists are running into is that parents are not willing to spend more to buy higher quality food. And Art Carden says, from where I sit, one could think, well, that looks irresponsible. I should intervene to change it. He says, I believe, though, that we would do well to think parents on the ground intimately acquainted with the particular circumstances of time and place are in a better position to know what's best for their families than someone like me watching YouTube videos on the other side of the world. He says, something struck me in watching YouTube videos about PagPag and the foodways of the very poor in places like Bangkok. He recommends actually search up Slum Food Millionaire on YouTube. He says, it's interesting that even the poorest of the poor who are eating discarded and reclaimed fast food leftovers, to them, flavor and presentation matter. In other words, people care about the quality. They care about the aesthetics. As Virginia Postrell has pointed out in her book, The Substance of Style, in every society, no matter how poor, people still ornament themselves and pay a little extra for food that tastes good. Now, Art Carden says, I'm not saying that the poor should quit complaining, eat our garbage, and be happy with it. They can't feed their children with our good intentions and righteous indignation, they need real resources. pag and similar food foodways illustrate a harsh reality and people's resilience in the face of the greatest difficulties. He says, It suggests to me that the world's poor could do fine, thank you very much, if we weren't actively keeping them from doing so by forcing them to stay on the other side of a border. By the way, he has a link to Michael Humer's argument for why there is a right to immigrate and why it's morally blameworthy To forcibly keep the world's poor from cooperating with willing employers, landlords, merchants, and others who also happen to be on the other side of the border. Now Art Carden says, my stomach turns thinking about eating dishes made from what's in the dumpster behind McDonald's. He says, I'm grateful that I have more options and more than a little ashamed at my tendency to take these incredible blessings for granted. Instead of watching a few documentaries on YouTube and thinking, wow, that's too bad. Someone should do something for those poor people. He says, we might do better to see how resourceful and hardworking people can be, even in the most desperate circumstances, and start looking for the institutional impediments, the absence of economic freedom, basically, that actively prevent the poor from improving their circumstances. I don't know about you, but I think the next meal that I sit down to, um, when I say grace over that meal, <laughs> I'm going to mean it. I did look at the uh, the video which is attached. This is the BBC video about PagPag. PAG. It looks appetizing. It's pretty. I mean, it's something you would see uh, Andrew Zimmern probably eat, you know, on his, uh, his food channel show, Bizarre Foods. But knowing where it came from, I'm like, wow. I can't imagine. I can't imagine being in a position where that's really, this makes the most sense because I can afford it, knowing that it's food that was recycled out of a dumpster somewhere. Pretty fascinating stuff. All right, let's shift gears, shall we? Let's talk about uh, philosophical idols. Or maybe I shouldn't say idols. How about heroes, right? I don't want to promote idolatry. Came across a great article. This was written by Lisa Miller back in 2017, published on the Foundation for Economic Education website. Three reason millennials should ditch Karl Marx for Ayn Rand. Now, this is going to trigger some people. It's usually, it's usually the boomers who have trouble with Ayn Rand. And I don't know if it's because they're in favor of collectivism or what. But I will admit, the millennials, there's, there's an unhealthy Fascination or at least uh, interest in Karl Marx. And this article by Lisa Miller points out that the fact, the fact of the matter is Karl Marx really doesn't align with what's important to most millennials. So she suggests maybe it's time to look for a new philosopher like Ayn Rand. I know, those of you who thinking, thinking, great. Yeah, if you like long-winded books, or, or I should say very hefty books with long-winded 50-page speeches, like Atlas Shrugged, <laughs> yeah, good. But Ayn Rand did have a lot to offer. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk more about this and talk about the three reasons why millennials should be ditching Karl Marx and going for Ayn Rand instead. I don't know if it's going to convince anybody, but it was interesting enough, I thought... I'll take a chance. I'll stick my neck out, share this. Maybe somebody will find value in it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Now, you boomers, don't you go wandering off because I'm going to be sharing some thoughts here about why millennials should ditch Karl Marx for Ayn Rand. And this is a message. It's it's an essay written specifically for millennials. Lisa Miller is the author. This was published on the Foundation for Economic Education website. And, boy, she wastes no time getting right to it. She says, Dear Avocado Toast-Eating Brethren, We need to drop Karl Marx like we dropped cable TV. We're a generation that's sick of wars and threats of wars, mass shootings and media sensationalism. As the ambassadors of the sharing economy and investors in cryptocurrency, we hold innovation and entrepreneurship in high esteem. And she says Karl Marx is not who we think he is. His philosophy doesn't align with our values at all. We need to look to somebody more in touch with what's important to us, someone like Ayn Rand. So here are three reasons we should kick old Carl to the curb and pick up Ayn Rand instead. And by the way, these are good reasons. So even if you're not a millennial, you should probably consider this. Number one, Karl Marx advocates using violence to get what you want. Lisa Miller says we hate the constant stream of wars the U.S. gets involved in. Whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or the threat of the Islamic State or North Korea, we're just tired of it all. Why can't everyone get along? Why do we have to topple regime after regime and flex our muscles on Twitter? Don't even get us started on the mass shootings. It's 2017, she says, for crying out loud. This violence needs to stop. If only Karl Marx felt the same way. But unfortunately, he says that the only way to bring about the ideal political state is through violent revolution. Here's from the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx in his own words, in depicting the most general phases of the development of the proletariat, we traced the more or less veiled civil war raging within existing society up to the point where that war breaks out into open revolution and where the violent overthrow of the bourgeoisie lays the foundation for the sway of the proletariat. Oh brother, she says, please, no more wars. Ayn Rand, on the other hand, is not a proponent of violence. She says your violence should only be a means of self-defense. If someone invades your country, you can retaliate. If someone punches you in the face, you can retaliate. If someone tries to steal, steal your stuff, you can retaliate. But there's no reason you should employ, voil- employ violence rather, other than if you or your stuff are attacked. Here's a quote from The Virtue of Selfishness. Ayn Rand said, A civilized society is one in which physical force is banned from human relationships, in which the government, acting as a policeman, may use force only in retaliation and only against those who initiate its use. Next, she points out Karl Marx appeals to your emotional indignation. She says, I groan every time a boomer rants about entitled millennials these days. We are not entitled, we are not lazy. And she says when they're trying to guilt us into going to church more or playing video games less or buying a house or getting married while we're still young, please, emotional appeals are the worst. And Lisa Miller says don't even get us started on media sensationalism. We've had enough of the red shouting faces, the blatant lying and fear-mongering. The wars on Christmas. The media is constantly trying to pit us against each other. Well, it turns out that Karl Marx uses the same us-versus-them hysteria as CNN and Fox News. He appeals to pathos and emotional outrage to, like we discussed above, try to get us to start a war. Again, from the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx said, Free man and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guild master and journeyman, in a word oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. Lisa Miller says, we're not having any of that, though, are we? We're done being manipulated by outrage and hysteria. It's time to change the channel to something a little calmer, more grounded, and personally empowering. Ayn Rand, fortunately, has the peaceful empowerment we're so desperately missing— While Karl Marx wants you to blame others, the bourgeoisie, for your plights, Ayn Rand wants you to introspect and perhaps reassess your values. Rather than encouraging you to camouflage yourself into a union of workers, she wants you to empower yourself as an individual to create a meaningful life for yourself. Mass hysteria? Be gone! (laughs) Here's a quote from Atlas Shrugged. Do not let your fire go out. Spark by irreplaceable spark, in the hopeless swamps of the not-quite, the not-yet, the not-at-all. Do not let the hero in your soul perish in lonely frustration for the life you deserved and have never been able to reach. The world you desire can be won. It exists. It is real. It is possible. It is yours. Finally, she says, Karl Marx wants to rest, wants mankind to rest on its laurels. Well, we got pretty good iPhones. SpaceX can salvage and relaunch rockets. And thanks to services like HelloFresh and Blue Apron, we no longer have to go to the grocery store. Time to pack it up. Call it a day. Everyone go home. There's no more need for innovation, at least according to Karl Marx. She says if Marx had his way, all incentives to improve and create cooler things would be stripped out of our lives along with our private property, And following the logical progression of his communal philosophy, when we're slaving away for the greater good, the highest achieving members of society are having the fruits of their labors redistributed to the lowest achievers. Insert flashback to the freeloaders of group projects at school. And that's what will happen. Innovation would cease to occur under Marxism. Ayn Rand says the claim that men should be retained in jobs that have become unnecessary, doing work that is wasteful or superfluous, To spare them the difficulties of retraining for new jobs, thus contributing, as in the case of railroads, to the virtual destruction of an entire industry, this is the doctrine of the divine right of stagnation. Now, Lisa Miller says, but with Ayn Rand's philosophy, our stuff will always remain ours. We don't have to share our Nintendo Switch with our little sister who drops her phone 10 times a day unless we want to. We can rest easy knowing that if we take a big risk and invest in cryptocurrencies while our parents mutter Ponzi scheme under their breaths, we have the opportunity for a big reward. And best of all, Ayn Rand's philosophy reaffirming our desire to be great and create great things, well, maybe someday we'll have Jarvis, jetpacks, flying hammocks. (laughs) She says the fact of the matter is that Karl Marx doesn't align with what's important to us millennials. If it were up to him, we'd be starting more violent wars, we'd be widening the gap of distrust between one another, and we'd strip ourselves of all incentives to make the world cooler than it already is. So it's time we adopt a new philosopher. She says, let's look up to people like Ayn Rand. That's pretty cool stuff. By the way, there's uh, there's another article that I want to touch on briefly. I'm not going to have time to go into a lot of detail here, but uh, if, if you, you don't have to be a John Bircher to have some grave concerns about a concerted effort to create a centralized government at a world or a global level. It's been going on for a long time. And by the way, I mean no disrespect to my friends who are members of the John Birch Society. I think factually they've been on target more often than not. And this article by Kurt Ellis published on intellectualtakeout.org explains how once the favored battering ram to, to break down our national or our, our local and individual sovereignty defenses, it was global climate change. Well, you know, we have to do something here. We've got to save the world and it can only be done at a global level. How dare you? Yes, you, you remember all of that, right? Well, guess what? It's no longer the favored battering ram. Instead, COVID-19 is what's being used to, to knock down any resistance to this global governance. And you know what? It's actually working. This is a concern. He says, the party line used to be that there's no such thing as globalism. No one wants to eliminate nations. Only conspiracy theorists believe in a new world order. One world government campaign going on. And Kurt Ellis says, if you were to say you opposed globalism, the response would be, well, what size tinfoil hat do you wear? Come on, I know you've heard this kind of talk. That was then, this is now. He says, the globalists no longer hide their plans. When asked, when everyone rather is asked, cajoled, or shamed into wearing masks, the globalists have let theirs slip. And he gives some very powerful and convincing evidence that uh, governments are now uh, coordinating in ways that uh, maybe were not foreseen and that guess what they're using covid-19 as their justification for doing so this is crazy stuff but it's true and the article is right there in the show notes go to the BrianHideshow.com, check it out for yourself you might di- you might agree you might disagree all i know is uh, Opportunity is looming large for those who want to instill such a thing. And COVID, the invisible enemy, it's the perfect opportunity to corral us while they can.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.